This is a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. So I, along with Christine, um, have the privilege of kicking off this short series uh, on the book of Ruth. Uh, So Ruth won this morning. You've already had an overview of the whole of Ruth, thanks to Johnny and the children's talk. I hope you were listening. That'll save me explaining a lot. Um, It is a confusing story. Uh, I think a couple of the kids were a little bit confused about Jesus and... (laughs) who the baby was and uh, what was happening but uh, I hope you've managed to figure it out at least if not by now uh, by the end of this series uh, in uh, next Sunday. Uh, So as Johnny said it's a a very old book the book of Ruth. Uh, If you're looking for it in your Bibles you need to uh, you need to look before the book of Kings so it's after the book of Judges but before the book of Kings so that tells you how old it is Um, uh, it was uh, it's a story that happened during the time of the judges at uh, uh, and uh, so that makes it uh, a very a very very old story Uh, it in many ways is a contrast to the book of Judges Uh, if you know the book of Judges it's uh, in many ways, a very bleak book because there's repeated cycles of, of apostasy and sin on behalf of the nation of Israel. And the book is full of wars and conflict and fights uh, as foreign countries um, attack Israel. Uh, God does raise up judges, uh, more military leaders uh, in, in a way, Uh, who bring deliverance for a time, but because of continued rebellion against God, that cycle just keeps repeating. But this book of Ruth is a breath of fresh air, really, uh, occurring after the book of Judges, Uh, because here we have the focus not on international conflict, uh, not on the sin and the apostasy of the people, but we have a, a lovely story of just a an ordinary family, an ordinary rural family, away from the centres of power and all the machinations of, uh, that that involves, and a poor family, but a family of faith, uh, who live the way that the whole nation should have been living. And the book of Judges would have been very different if that had have been the case. But as you know, uh, that didn't mean they weren't without difficulties and Johnny shared some of that. The book does contain uh, quite a lot of ancient custom, uh, which is foreign to us. In fact, the, the book is interesting as a historical record because many of the customs that are referred to in Ruth, we, know, we don't know about them from anywhere else. No other documents that we have indicate the kind of culture, cultural practices that are described in Ruth. But... Um, Given that, we are in a very different culture. Uh, The book isn't just about culture. It's not just a story. Uh, There are some great lessons, I think, for us to learn from this book, even though we live at a very different time in a very different culture. It's pretty uh, easy to see as you read through the book that it is a book about women. It's a woman's story. Uh, There are a couple of men mentioned in the first few verses, but 
as Johnny said, they don't last too long. And what's left is a story about women. And so as Johnny and Lewis and I were looking at the preaching program and who was going to preach what, uh, we sort of looked at each other and said, look, this is a bit strange, three men talking about a women's book. <laughs> and so uh, we talked about how we might be able to do this a little bit differently. And we came up with the idea of Christine and I um, together having a look at Ruth One with you. So this is not going to be a sermon today. Um, you're not going to get a sermon. What you're going to get is a dialogue, our personal reflections on just the first chapter of Ruth. So Christine, if you'd like to come up with me and we'll have a bit of a chat. Look, it's not unusual that we chat about different Bible passages, but this is different to do it in front of people. We've never done this before and I don't know that you've ever participated in or watched something like this before maybe you have but we haven't seen this happen in a sermon spot in any church so we're finding our way here but I know you are a church that has as a value uh, new initiatives and innovation so we're relying on that <laughs> that you're you're going to accept what we say in that kind of a spirit look if it doesn't work well I don't have to stay, do I? <laughs> We're out of here um, without you having to tell us to go. But look, in that spirit, we're going to have a bit of a chat about this, this little beautiful book. So welcome, Christine. <laughs> I should say, when we discuss things at home, um, we're not always on the same page. Uh, that might happen today as well, but we'll try and behave ourselves more than we would if you weren't watching. So we'll try and set a good example. So um, the first thing, we're going to take this in sections today because um, to read the whole chapter might be a little bit hard to digest all in one go. So I'm just now going to read uh, the first five verses of Ruth chapter one. And we're using the living, the living Bible. So... In the, in the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then... Elimelech died and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Marlon and Killian died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. It might be helpful um, just right at the beginning to explain the meanings of some of those names. And in a way, uh, it does lead into the story. So Bethlehem, that means, well, it's, uh, it's made up of two uh, Hebrew words. The first one is bet, which means the house, and lamb, which means bread. So Bethlehem literally means house of bread, which is interesting when you think about the story and the problem right at the beginning of the chapter. 
uh, the husband, Elimelech, uh, his name is made up of two parts too. Eli means high, um, and when it's in a name, it usually refers to the high one, in other words, God. Uh, Melech is king. So Elimelech means God is king or my God is king. And presumably, Elimelech was someone who lived up to that name, was worthy of uh, of that name, uh, someone who honoured God as his king. Naomi means pleasant, delightful. Marlon, uh, and this may be an indication of what happened, uh, Marlon means weak or sickly. So it's quite possible that right from birth he was a, not a robust child. Uh, likewise, Killian, his name means failing or pining. How would you like either of those names as a boy <laughs> in those days? Nominative determinism, I think they call that, don't they? Something like that. Now, the other two key people in the story at this stage are Orpah and Ruth. Now, they're both Moabite names, and the exact meaning of those is not quite as clear. There are some links with the Hebrew language, but it's not as clear as with the other names. But most people think Orpah means neck or derives from uh, the Moabite word for neck. And you can interpret that one of two ways. Um, in that culture, a, neck, a long neck was a sign of beauty, so she may have been beautiful, beautiful neck, or some interpret it as stiff-necked in a sort of a negative kind of way. Uh, Ruth and, uh, uh, simply means friend. I think most of the commentators point that out. So I've, I've, um, I've explained the names. What, do you, what, do you, what have you got to say about the story? I guess my, my comments just for that first um, passage uh, you know, John in his introductory remarks, or you, we're supposed to be talking to each other, you, <laughs> pointed out that, that, it, that it is true. This, this story is an ancient story and, and as you get further along in the passage, you find the concerns of these women aren't necessarily the concerns that um, drive our lives as modern people. So you do stumble across some cultural barriers, there's no doubt about that in this um, story, but you will also have been alerted as the story unfolds that um, immediately um, we get a story of um, a family in transit because of famine. And, um, you know, any of us who are connected with worldwide news today know that... Um, you know, our, our, our globe is beset with great movements, of great refugee movements of people who have to shift around the planet for all kinds of reasons, um, conflict, uh, persecution, but increasingly um, famine is um, as a serious cause of disruption in the world today. So at once, there, there is a point of connection with us in this story, different in that our lives are far more cushioned um, from famine than these people are. This is a story of a poor, a humble family who, whose, whose margin or capacity to cope with difficulty are so slim that at the sign of famine they have to move and make that very brave decision that refugees, again, all around our planet make today 
we have to move somewhere better for our children to, to make a, a, a better future for our, our children. Now, uh, I might just ask you to pop up the second um, picture, the picture, if you like. Is that possible? Yeah. So, um, I chose this picture because this is obviously a picture of um, people moving in famine. And um, often you see scenes like this and people say, oh, you know, it's of biblical proportions or it's a biblical scene. And, and it's kind of true. There are still people living in those ancient, um, rudimentary, very basic life patterns. So they are still pretty biblical. And and um, and the other thing that you'll note in that picture is that is in, almost entirely comprised of um, women and children. Again, the refugee story is largely a story of female displacement. Um, Ninety percent of the world's refugees are women and children, and so. Um, the, the, I guess the, the, the seeds of what we see today were certainly being experienced thousands of years ago. So um, a lot of time has passed, but human beings still behave in pretty much the same way when they're faced with difficulty. Mm. Um, one, one of the things that we talked about um, when we were discussing this passage is just the the disruption for them uh, moving to a different country, not just the disruption of moving home, but for people of faith to be leaving their faith community, uh, their nation, which worship God, to go to a foreign nation. And uh, that, was, uh, that was something that we uh, felt was uh, an element that added an even more difficult circumstance to, to what they were facing. We're not sure whether they were intending to go just for a short time till the famine was over, probably. Um, maybe not relocating permanently. But nonetheless, uh, a very difficult decision, no doubt, for Elimelech and the family to make. And added to that the uncertainty, the insecurity of the, of the whole thing. And, and, I mean, on the upside, it's, it's worth pointing out, as refugees, they made um, a very successful go of it, as many refugees do in um, our, our um, country. Um, and and their, their story kind of reflects the cycle of a refugee in, in that sense, that they, they go to a strange place. Again, we, we don't know anything of what happened to them, except that, for them to have survived, they must have experienced at least uh, a lack of hostility for them to have coped in a foreign country. So, at the very least, a lack of hostility, some kindness, some generosity, to the extent that their sons married into that community. So, so you can see they, they completed that, that full cycle of, um, of, of, you know, the, the many refugee stories that we're witness to today in our um, in our country as well. Mm. Yeah. So in the midst of all that uns insecurity, uncertainty, they they did well. Welcomed they and did received well. hospitality. Yeah. And uh, became a part of the community there, mm. without losing faith. faith. So yeah. I mean, I think mm. that comes out in the next part. Yeah. So let's let's mm. uh, have a look at the next reading. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. 
So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, Why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and if and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again they wept together. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth insisted on staying with Naomi. Uh, now this, this section of the, of the um, passage, I, I, I call, I think of it as um, the journey of life, I suppose. And again, in the Bible, in our experience, it's not an unusual thing to think about our life in terms of a journey. Um, we go from dependence to independence, some of us to dependence again. We go from ignorance or immaturity to wisdom. We transition from maturity, competence, perhaps to insignificance. I, I think at, at this, at this um, point in the story, Naomi's really hitting rock bottom. Again, part, part of the story is the foreignness of it all. Uh, these are three women who, whose prime concern, whose prime source of anxiety is that they haven't managed to produce a son, somebody who can carry on the family name. Now, modern women, modern families don't carry that concern to the extent that people in these traditional settings did and still do in many places today. So that's not necessarily our concern. But many of us, many of us with hair like ours today, I mean, Naomi is, um, how can I put it? She's... Past she's, she's, well, well, she's, she's, she's utterly, um, utterly unforgiving, I think, of herself in the fact that she's scrutinising her life to the extent that if, if a woman in a, in a traditional culture, their main purpose is to give birth to sons, she's telling them in no uncertain terms that she's past it. She can't, uh, like, even, even if she were find somebody to marry tonight and have a baby, that, that child wouldn't be mature in time for Ruth and Orpah to, to have a future with, with offspring. So she's, she's unforgiving of their, their position and she's trying to drive that, that point home to those two daughters-in-law for their own good so they can make good decisions and have a future. Again, it's... I guess sometimes this is the power of reading the Bible because we get this unvarnished... Well, I get an introduction to have an unvarnished view of ourselves. She's very hard on herself. And, she, and 
what she fails to see, and probably the point at which more of us can identify with, is that actually she's lived a life of faith and love and hospitality and care, and these are the qualities that are going to take her through to, to complete that life journey. And, of course, these are the qualities that both Ruth and Orpah treasure in her so much. So... Yeah, it's that, that yeah, faith bit that I wanted yeah. to comment on because that's what stood out to me in those few verses. If I can go back. She is obviously a, um, a person with a strong faith and maintained that faith even uh, in a foreign country where they were worshipping foreign gods. She maintained that faith even despite everything that happened not just being poor and hungry because of the famine, but her husband dying, her two sons dying, and yet it's evident that as she returns, and, and perhaps this was prompted by her faith to return to uh, the, her community of faith, uh, but certainly she comes across uh, with a strong faith. She, she prays for Naomi and Orpah, and presumably that wasn't an, an unusual thing for her to do with them, and interestingly, what she prays for them, she prays that they might have what she's lost, that they might have a husband, that they might have children. Uh, and so this is a very heartfelt prayer from Ruth, a short prayer, but a very significant one for her. And you'll notice there that in our translation, she uses the word Lord. Uh, that's uh, Yahweh. Uh, which is the personal name for God. So she doesn't just talk about, may God bless you. It's Yahweh, the, the personal God, the God I know. She prays that, God, uh, that, that her personal God would, would bless them. And as Christine made a comment, I, I thought it was a good one, um, she was kind, selfless. Uh, at this point, she's not thinking about herself. She's quite prepared to head back home on her own, alone, she is thinking about them. Uh, she's wanting to send them back so that they might have a future. Uh, and there's a, a, a selflessness, I think, to the prayer. But above all, I think what comes out is just her acceptance of the sovereignty of God. Despite all that she's been through, lesser people might have said, well, you know, if that's the kind of God we have, you know, I'm out of here. But she doesn't. Despite accepting that everything that has happened to her has been from God, uh, and she says that, uh, God's hand has been against her, despite that, she is still going to follow and trust and believe in her Yahweh. And so that's, uh, I, I think that's a powerful lesson for us. I've shared this with you before, but one of the songs that we've learnt here, Highlands, I just love that, that section where it says, if ever I walk through the valley of death, I will sing through the shadows my song of ascent. And it's uh, that idea, and it's in Job as well, you know, whatever, whatever might happen, still I'm going to walk with God and trust in him. And that's what comes across for me there. Uh, in that passage we keep going look at the next verses 15 to 18 of chapter 1 so see Naomi said to her your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods you should do the same 
But Ruth replied, Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. So when Naomi saw that Ruth had made up her mind to go with her, she stopped urging her. Now, uh, the, the words in the middle of that passage are, are very common to us, aren't they? Um, they're often included in marriage services. Now, I've, I've done a lot of weddings. Um, there are two passages I can, uh, I can almost... I often expect... You're not a betting person, are you? I was going to say You're guarantee. not a betting person, though. No. <laughs> uh, not going to make a bet. Ma many people, many people pick 1 Corinthians 13 and these verses from Ruth. The interesting thing is neither of those are about marriage. 1 Corinthians 13 isn't. It's about love. Uh, now, of course, it can e hopefully, <laughs> hopefully be applied to marriage. Don't get me wrong. But it's a passage about our love for one another and, uh, and, and surely a husband and a wife ought to have that kind of love but that's not what the passage is about. Uh, neither is this a passage about marriage. It's a commitment that one woman is making to another. Again, uh, lovely words and, and when you read them I thought, oh, well, that would have been nice for you to say at our wedding. <laughs> You might have think it would have been nice for me to say it to you. I mean, what? I mean, we have lived that out nonetheless, even though we didn't say it, we had other Bible readings. I, I do follow you around a fair bit. You have followed me around. And can I say I do appreciate that. And my family has been your family. Um, and that's, that's been special. So, yeah, I, I appreciate that, that you've, you've lived this out, even though you didn't say it. Um, <laughs> You said other nice things, but yeah. So I, I think um, I think this might be a discussion we continue at home personally. Uh, well, John John has sort of pointed out, oh, it's not really about marriage. I find it a little bit irritating when it gets used about marriage because I think I think it misses the point. I think it it completely undervalues friendship and and the power the power that friendship, really good friendship, between people, I mean, in this case, Naomi and Ruth, two women, friendship that's crossed, um, crossed a generation, crossed cultures, crossed ages, the, the power of good friendship in a community to actually buttress people's lives. And, you know, quite a lot is made in uh, scripture, I guess, about the friendship between David and Jonathan. Well, here, here's a story of friendship between two women and it's probably true to say you could hold this thought and, and see if it stacks up as the rest of the story unfolds. But if Naomi and Ruth, particularly I guess Ruth dependent on Naomi's friendship and goodwill, would her life flourish in the same way without that friendship? And, you know, some, sometimes maybe it's true, women tend to dump our women friends when we get lovely man in, in our lives. Thank but you. actually, <laughs> actually, our lives are all the better for the power and the goodwill that good friends make 
Mm. So we, we, we don't really value these words enough if we just think about them in terms of marriage. Mm. Yep. Yeah, that can certainly be applied in other situations as well. The other textual thing I'll just bring out here is that, that Ruth says, uh, my God will be your God, or your God will be my God, put it the other way around. Uh, but then she goes on to use the personal name of God, Yahweh, uh, as she continues making that statement. And so here is an indication that Ruth uh, has come to the same personal relationship with God and desires that uh, just as Naomi has. We'd better move on and yep, yep. Uh, let's read this last part of the passage. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was stirred by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. Don't call me Naomi. She told them. Instead, call me Mara. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Well, if I can just draw out uh, what's obvious there, the change in names. Naomi wanting people to no longer call her pleasant but Mara, which means bitter. Uh, that's the, uh, the extent of the agony that she uh, had been facing and that she had gone through. Once pleasant, now bitter. Once full, she says, but now I'm empty. And she shares that with her faith community, with the, the, the women. Uh, many of whom she would have known before she headed off to Moab with her husband and her sons. Uh, again, and I won't, I won't labour the point because I've already commented on it, but it's even clearer here uh, how she accepts the sovereignty of God, that somehow or other uh, she understands this to be part of what God's will is and she's willing to accept that. I guess it leaves us as the readers or the hearers of this story with the question well where does it go from here what's going to happen and that's what we'll find out in the other three sermons uh, in this particular series maybe you could try and sum up you you had a good outline in fact yeah, i might well, i might pinch it as a three-point <laughs> sermon sometime and preach it as a proper sermon well, I've, I've been listening to your three-point oh, sermons you. for a long time now, so I, it's, it's my habit to You've think about... you picked up the knack. <laughs> it's, it's, it's my habit now to think in terms of three points. Um, yeah, so I guess just to conclude, and some, sometimes it helps... Oh, what was all that about? Dividing the passage into three ideas. The first section, the, the forced... If we think about it in terms of three journeys, so the first section, that of a forced journey, a journey against their will, a journey born out of despair, but live, living in the presence of God and creating a, a good life, in, at, even at the end of this forced journey. The second part of the chapter just reminding us all that our life is a journey of sorts and we pass through different phases. And even at the end, when we think we're not significant or not of much use anymore, there is still that life with God in that. And then the last part is the journey home, the journey to 
a place that we all long for, that, that, that again is the great human journey. We all long for home and, you know, as followers of God, we know that we have our, our home in eternity and, and even as we value our home here, we know that we're not permanent residents but our true home is with God. And so Naomi, ancient woman as she is, living in a culture that's so foreign to her, still has that great human impulse to, to be in her home. And so just, just a way of thinking about that passage. But of course, Naomi is in her home. We're not certain about Naomi's future at this point. Her friends seem to recognise her. You know, is this Naomi? Well, yes, it is. But that's no indicator yet that she's been accepted back into her home. The lovely thing about this passage, and I think the genius of the story, is the last half of the last verse. And, and we are left with a bit of hope. And, and it, it's a little bit of a teaser, a tantalising verse. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, a harvest is a time when you start to reap rewards. And I guess the question for all of us is, is Naomi going to start reaping some rewards for her life of faith? for good things she's done to cultivate a deep and loving relationship with her daughter-in-law. Is there a harvest for Naomi? I guess that's, that's what Johnny would like you all to come along tonight and, <laughs> and see. Is there a harvest for Naomi? Uh, can I just say... A harvest if, of good things, I'm thinking, yeah. for Naomi. That's what we're hoping for. I'll just say, Christine has put some of this down on paper. I think it's a, a few pages. So if you'd like to read a little bit more about this first chapter... I think probably the easiest thing is we'll just post it on the website where Johnny has his Bible studies. You'll be able to find it there. This has been a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. To continue the conversation, we invite you to join us Sundays at 9.30am and 5pm or on our website at www.nvbc.com. Dot info.